You are Locked On Cowboys, your daily podcast on the Dallas Cowboys. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Cowboys podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Thank you for tuning in. I am your host, Marcus Mosier. You can find me on Twitter at Marcus underscore Mosier. And today we have another special podcast for you. Uh, Landon McCool at, at McCoolBCB uh, has his part three of his conversation with Daniel Houston, better known as at Cowboy Stats. Uh, they do an excellent job talking about the context of some advanced stats, how to use them, which stats are the most stable. Uh, so let's jump right in with Landon and Daniel. Okay, so uh, this one's called uh, Offense versus Opposing Defense. Which unit appears to be determining the better shape of, uh, better, sorry, the better share of results on the field? And how should we interpret team defensive stats in light of the influence of opposing offenses? You know, and uh, a lot of this too is about just the stability of being a great defense, I guess is the best way to put it, maybe. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and whether that is something that can, be constantly replicated so where where would you like to start in this general topic sure i you know i i think in general the the first thing i'd bring up is that stability question you mentioned so when landon says stability he's referring to you know the the how replicable is defensive success over time if you're a really good defense in the first 7 or 8 weeks of the season how likely are you to get really good defensive results in the second half of that same season or from one season to the next. And what, what people have found is essentially that the offensive results are much more stable over time uh, than the defensive results. Um, and there's still a ton of variance there. Like offenses go up and down all the time. We saw it with the, uh, the Rams this past year where they were just otherworldly dominant in the first half of the season and still good in the second half, but there was just a big drop off, right? Um, there's similar stuff that happens every single season with a bunch of teams, but the offensive side of the ball is getting more consistent results by EPA per play, by success rate, pretty much whatever you want to look at. The offense is more consistent than the defense. Um, and there's different theories of how to explain this. And I think the strongest one, um, which once again, this is hypothesis. This is theory. Um, I've got one too, so I'm interested to see how close it is. Okay, to we we might come down on different <laughs> sides here. The, the one that I think okay. is more convincing or most convincing to me is simply that the results of what happens on in an individual play on the field are determined more by what the offense is doing and how they're dictating um, and choosing where to go with the ball uh, than than the defense is influencing those same plays. And I think over, it's not so much that that's happening every play, but just that over time, really good quarterbacks find ways to exploit defenses. Uh, defenses often have weak links. Defenses also, um, you know, they're less reliant on like a single player, like a quarterback, for instance. You're going to have injuries. Yeah. You're going to have churn and, and turnover in that staff. Uh, you know, just your linebackers aren't going to be the same linebackers over the course of the season. Yeah. There's just a lot of things you can point to. But I think, Overall, um, the most the, the explanation with the most like power for me is just that the offense has more to say about what's going on on the field than the opposing defense does, and the defense matters. Uh, 
very clearly has a, a big role to play in the outcome of the game. The defensive results matter probably every bit as much in an individual game as the offensive results do. I, I mean, I think that's actually the problem if you're, if you're going to ask. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, here's, here's my theory, and it's, it's actually not far from what you're saying. I think the reason that offense is more stable is because, first of all, I think offense is more scheme-based than defense is. I think defense is more reaction-based. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they set rules for defenders, but ultimately they want defenders to react. So those results that are happening on a defensive side are based on the, the rules set down by the defen- defensive coaches. And I think the defensive results is a lot based on the players that are on the field. So, but that's also a very volatile situation, mm-hmm. right? Because you need a, a, eleven good players to play good football. I think, but I think in order to play good offensive football, all you need is a healthy quarterback and a system that's working. You could probably shut. I mean, I think individual wide receivers and, and players like that work, but I think offenses can still function and create because of the way they're built and because they're so quarterback reliant and quarterback is a position that ultimately I think relative to other positions is so healthy uh, that it it causes a level of stability that defenses don't Mm -hmm. have. They shuttle in, like you said, they don't have just a running back. They've got three running backs as as linebackers. They don't, you know, these defensive linemen, they, they get shuttled in and out as well. They, they pick up injuries, uh, maybe even more than offensive players because they're such, Everyone on the on the field defensively is such tightly wound players. They're such incredible athletes that there's wear and tear there, and there's so much shuttling in and out. There's so much more substitution that there's increased amounts of variance there, of course. So I think ultimately it's interesting because it, that would explain the wide variance mm-hmm. there, I mean, year to year. But it also would explain why having good defensive players matters. Because without them, you just are playing bad football, even when you're healthy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because it, it kind of goes both ways, right? Like, you can yeah. have a defense that isn't doesn't have that great of personnel, you know, and or, you know, has bad results in the first half of the season. And they can right the ship. And by all appearances, yeah. the way we traditionally look at defensive stats and defensive results, you know, we, we usually say, the defense really struggled in the first part of the year, and then they just locked it down, and they started producing turnovers, and they started doing this and that, and, and they helped their team win. And from a purely descriptive standpoint, it's true that the defensive results improved and that, the, you know, that, that it helped the team win games. The question is, how much of that was actually a reflection of opposing offenses, almost leaving an imprint in the defensive stats? Yeah. You know? and. It's impossible to really say, but um, it you know it's it's partly why I'm kind of I'm kind of skeptical of these sort of like with and without stats, you know, where like like yeah. I remember PFF had this this tweet in the middle of the season. It wasn't even a big tweet, it, you know, it wasn't a big deal, but it just stuck with me. Um, there was like a defender I don't even remember their name for the Rams. It was a cornerback, I think, really good player who missed most of the season. Um, and when in the games that he missed, the defense was just off a cliff. And then they were really good in yeah. the games that he was he was part of. And so the conclusion that most people would draw is that this player is essential. This one player yeah. on defense is essential. 
But if you just went back and looked at the games that this player missed and at, the quarterbacks at the schedule, they, yeah. played, they played like all the best quarterbacks on their on their schedule. Yeah, that, so that's and, one illustration, I think, of how the opposing offenses leave their mark on the defensive stats. And yet the way I certainly used to think about defensive stats, and I think a lot of people traditionally think about them, we tend to give like almost 100% credit to the defense for those outcomes. Yes, but in yes. reality, it's a more complex mixed picture. And a lot of it's luck. A lot of it's like turnovers that you were just gifted. And some of it, I think a big portion of it is the opposing offense as opposed to the quality of the defensive play. And your own offense. Yeah. That's the other thing. Look, listen, I think, again, and let's let's go into the, the final subsection about proper analytics application. But but I do want to say that I think, again, one, th- one thing where I feel like EPA and a lot of contextualized analytics really struggle to explain is that complementary football is a thing. You know, like I think it's hard for us to quantify it, but I think the idea that time is an element in winning and that uh, having the ability to find a way to control that time and whether and, and not just like being able to control the time, but being able to control the psychology of the other team's playmaker using time. And using uh, a lack of opportunity, I guess, is the best way to mm-hmm. say it, as a motivating factor. I think these are things that it's not that it's hard to account. I think the problem is is that it needs to be accounted for for some teams more than others. And when we look at it from a wide scale, this is an element that I think is completely ignored at times. If if you know, yeah. So you so when you're talking about sort of complementary football. Uh, you're, you're referring mostly, it sounds like in this context, at least to um, a team that controls the ball, controls the clock, uh, moves the chains, and perhaps uh, keeps you know its defense off the field. Is is that kind of the idea? It's. I think the thing is, is that I feel like in the same way that like how do you measure the proper EPA of a quarterback taking a winning deal at the end of the game, <laughs> where it's like. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, because it's, 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 it's winning the game, but at the same time, you know, take a one yard gain on, on first and 10 is not, is not optimal. Right. right? So I, I think, I think there's a point where taking a two yard run up the middle in order to run 35 seconds off the clock, it was, you know, two, two minutes left in the fourth quarter when the other team has one timeout, like that has value that I think is, difficult to measure oh. you know what i'm saying and and i th- that's not like a small thing those are those are a significant number of plays that happen in any given nfl season and even in a yeah game. i mean you're so, looking for uh win probability win probability added which is a sister stat yeah. to expected points added um where they do at the very least uh incorporate the sort of the game state uh where you are in the game and if it's kind of late in the fourth quarter and it includes, you know, it includes the time on the clock. So, you know, if you were able to burn additional time um, from like a, a rushing play, that you know, that that's going to factor into win probability added. And that that is, I think, something that I, I haven't looked a ton at win probability late in games, but others have. And what they've kind of found is that, yeah, you can have a run that's like kind of negative EPA. Um, 
but it's advancing your your chances of winning in a late game situation with a particular score. Um, but yeah, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating question in general, um, and not one that I've looked at in a ton of detail myself. So I can yeah, mostly just. But I, speculate, I, I think it's you know I think it's something just like the, uh, that's in the context that the when measuring some of this mm-hmm. stuff because I think it's something that gets waved away by people that aren't aren't thoughtful about using this stuff like like the people that are presenting it. That's again, this is more the problem is that I, I think the people that present these tools are are thoughtful because they understand the tools. Right. And so the, 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 how they are applied, they understand how not to fool yeah. themselves with using these tools because they understand what this is. They understand it for what it is. I think sometimes people take the tools, understand them on a very surface level. And, and I myself have been victim of this before. Oh, we my, all have. To myself. Yeah, we all you know? have. And, sure. and, and, and oh, that, that's the other thing is, yeah, I totally, I think w- even in the analytics community, the people that invent the tools at times fall victim to their own tools. And I think the story you illustrated earlier is a good idea of what, what you were talking about, about Zeke's carries. It's like, if you're not careful against your own biases, mm-hmm. you know, you can make these stats, you can make any of these stats. It's the classic, you know, uh, every time, uh, d- the DeMarco Murray goes over 100 yards in Dallas Cowboys yeah. <laughs> football, football game. Yeah. You know, it's like that can that can mean whatever you want it to. So, um, yeah, I just think that's where we are with this. I think that's it's it. We just have to be very careful, and that again brings us to our larger talk at the end of application of of how to use these uh, uh, these stats and these numbers and. Um, I, like I said before, and, and you just tell me whether you agree, my general hypothesis is that using these tools to kind of more specific situations and, and, and like that I kind of have clear lines of, of connection uh, is a much more efficient way to kind of get the most out of them as opposed to some of the more generalized large scale. I mean, I think, I think some of the larger scale stuff works, but I, I just think you know, the NFL has so many different schemes and, and, and diverse groups that I think sometimes some of these things are better measured in smaller individualized groups, maybe intra-team if, if, if possible. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on kind of general best practices on, on kind of using these tools for some of our users who, who see them on, on, uh, on Twitter and, and, and kind of, you know, are, are unsure of how to apply. Them. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. I think where I come down on it myself is that you're better off actually starting from the the idea of trying to find what the league dynamics are, right? So you want the largest sample. You want uh, dynamics that are applying, if not to every team universally, then at least you know, every team is almost participating in a, in a measurable relationship between a couple of variables. You want to start, I think, from the general principles um, to get an idea of what you want to do in the specific situation. And the reason I say that is because the reverse uh, approach, um, where you're starting from like an individual team and their tendencies and their outcomes, you're starting with a much smaller sample. Um, it's it's you're not even sure whether that's going to be useful information for that same team the following season or the next game because of how small the sample is at times. Um, and, you know, 
like I, I, I would, I just think this is a really good question because it's like raising so many like sub questions in my mind. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think I've also made myself not clear because I used intra team as, as, a, as an example of a small group, but, th- but you're right. Like that is a bad example. I think I meant more, um, and I, I don't necessarily have problems with t- league wide measurements. I, I think it's more just that I, that I, they need to be, uh, here's where I have, I have problems with things like the PFF grades. Yeah. Because I feel like it's it's a combination, and I understand it's a combination of a whole bunch of small things, but I think that it gets lost in translation at times when it's too many things kind of being hodgepodge together in a product that eventually also includes a decimal point, which to <laughs> me, when presented, seems like a, it's supposed to be an accurate product, right? It's, it has a decimal point in it. So um, I, I just think I, I'm, what I more mean is is that I think it's useful in finding out specific, maybe finding out a specific thing in, that is a league-wide trend, or mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying, like as opposed to kind of trying to make it like the, it's like the old Douglas Adams, right? Like trying to make it the the solution, the answer to all the things in the universe <laughs> of, of all, ever. You know, it's like the forty-two is not just a comprehensive answer. You know, like I, I guess my point is is that it's good for finding specific things. What I don't think it's great for is we still haven't found a way to kind of hodgepodge it all together into an algorithm to solve, you know, yeah. football. Yeah. I guess it's more what I, I, I'm getting. No, that's definitely the, that's definitely true. And I think the, the key to, to learning uh, about the game using these tools is to understand their limitations. Um, they're, yeah. they're not, yeah. Like, like we said at the very beginning at the very outset, EPA, for instance, is a fantastic tool for analyzing uh, large numbers of plays and the results of those plays and the value that is being added using different techniques in different situations. But it tells you nothing about intent and it tells you nothing about any yeah. number of other things. And, you know, we do have to interpret the information if we're trying to learn from it and make some hypotheses and guesses and maybe try to test those. And sometimes we're going to interpret the data in a way that's wrong. Um, just a bad theory. And it'll be in good faith, you know, but we'll be wrong. Um, that's going to happen and, uh, it's going to happen with any kind of analysis, um, to some extent, but I think the more we try to recognize the limits of the tool and also the limits of our ability to use it, to draw a conclusion, the better conclusions we can draw from it. Um, going back to kind of the original like question here, I think like, here's just an example of how I would approach, um, like applying this for uh, like the Cowboys, I would let, let's look at like second and 10 play calling for the Cowboys. There was a period in mid season where I think the average Cowboys rush on second and 10 was more uh, valuable than the average pass in that same situation. Hmm. Um, so the question is, what do you do with this information? Do you suddenly say, and we need to be running the ball more often on second and 10 because it's working and because the pass isn't working? Um, or do you back up and you say, well, let's check and see, like, let's see, is this, work, is this the same for other NFL teams? Because we know we have a yeah. small sample of second and 10 plays. There's just not a lot of them. You've got a lot of second and nine, second and eights, but second and 10 is very specific. Um, yeah. And even if you have a few dozen or even like close to a hundred plays or something, you're still talking about something that 
just may not be repeatable and you may be giving yourself bad information. So the first thing I would do is look at the lead um, and just look at situationally how those dynamics play out. And what you see is the second and 10 rushes are generally not very good plays um, compared to passes. Um, and so I would just have that information in the back of my head. And I would also be bringing in the information that the Cowboys had that success in a small sample. Exactly. And you try to yeah, reconcile see, those things and figure out what to do going forward. It. I love hearing that because that's, I think that's, and that's something that little nuance is, is exactly the way it should be. This is a tool, you know, this is providing again, and uh, all back to my, the brand I love so much context. You know, this is all providing context to the, the play caller, the decision maker. Hey, generally speak, it's it's just like the fourth the fourth down bot. You mm-hmm. know, it's like having the fourth down bot is just like, hey, this is this is what the the numbers say. That that doesn't mean that's the right. decision. You know, you you're the coach in the, the the moment. You understand your team, and I think that's one of the things that's you know, a guy like Jason Garrett has a lot of faults. You know, a, 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 you can say a lot of different things about him that not great in-game coachings at times that he's had problems. But I think the one thing that you can say about him is that he understands his team and he knows his team very mm-hmm. well. And so uh, I think, you know, that is, and that's an important thing to know in the moment is what the numbers are, what the numbers tell you, and also what specifically where your team is on that scale. And what, what, how you feel about where they are in that specific moment, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's important in, the, in, in these decision-making is that none of this is the end-all, be-all answer. It's a tool. It's, the, it, it's a new tool that gives us better context, a different way of looking at things. But it's still, you know, a tool, of a, a, an aspect of, of decision-making. Yeah. And maybe, you know, like, here, here's what I'm hopeful for with regard to analytics and its use in the NFL. I'm hopeful that at some point in the mid to near future, we see coaches start to really kind of try to wrap their heads around this different way of analyzing the game and their own tendencies. And when they're in that situation where they're like, I know my team, it's second and 10. I know my running back. I know my line and I I know what I can trust them to do, what concept I, I can expect them to pull off. I know we've been struggling to pass in this particular way. I, what I hope is that yeah. in that moment where they have all of these like almost gut instincts that are based on a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge, I would hope that they can incorporate into that exactly. an idea of yes. like the broader dynamics that are very difficult to grasp with gut instinct or even experience because there's just so many plays and our brains are not able to crunch all the implications of all of these plays that have happened in the NFL, hundreds of thousands of plays um, that have lessons for us in them if we look at them in a comprehensive way and in a sound uh, data analysis approach. Um, so essentially, what I d- really what I want for my team, like the Cowboys, I want them to like put themselves in a position to win, um, which I think they already have been for a while now, clearly. But um, what I would like to see is a more robust investment in analytics um, and a coaching staff and front office that would be willing to incorporate it basically from the top down to just basically solve certain problems, to do the things that analytics do well while allowing the coaches and the personnel people to do what they do well. Um, 
And right now, I think what you see across the league is, you know, guys who made entire careers without ever really confronting what data analysis could bring to um, an understanding of this game. Um, so that's kind of my hope is is that there will be an incorporation and there will be like a realization that my gut instinct and even my knowledgeable experience doesn't always produce the right answer in the long run. And we can show that um, by showing a large number of plays that, that bear that out. Daniel, thank you so much for, for joining us. I mean, this was so fantastic. We got through so much information. Uh, give, give everyone your uh, Twitter handle one more time before oh, we head out. Oh, it's at Cowboys Stats. And are you still doing stuff for WFAA next season? Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, I, I don't write as much as I would like to just because, you know, I've, uh, like you, I've got a full-time job and uh, what I do yeah. is, is writing. And so it's like, uh, when, when I, when I'm struck with inspiration and I have the time to crunch new numbers and, in a comprehensive way, I, I put it up on WFAA. So yeah, people can definitely look for my work there and I'll share that on Twitter, uh, when I'm able to write. Welcome back to the Locked On Cowboys podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Thank you for tuning in. I am your host, Marcus Mosier. You can find me on Twitter at Marcus underscore Mosier. And today we have another special podcast for you. Uh, Landon McCool at, at McCoolBCB uh, has his part three of his conversation with Daniel Houston, better known as at Cowboy Stats. Uh, they do an excellent job talking about the context of some advanced stats, how to use them, which stats are the most stable. Uh, so let's jump right in with Landon and Daniel. 